Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. Uh, Robert Fay here in Beaverton, Oregon, with Roman Sivkin uh, in Ventura, California, north of Los Angeles there. And uh, recording us today and producing the program is Heston Hoffman in Portland. So uh, today we're, we're just going to kind of do a catch-up episode. I know uh, both Roman and I have been... Um, doing quite a bit of reading. I, I you know, Roman, I, I want to report back on a few things, one of which is um, uh, Augustine Fernandez uh, Mayo, the Nocia trilogy. And oh, also, that's right. yeah. Yeah. And I, I've uh, also with, uh, we talked about uh, Isaac Babel and uh, the Red Calvary stories. And, uh, and then I also, I kind of went off on a tangent and um, I just had a weird desire to, to read this, 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 I will sound like a book nerd here, but uh, a weird <laughs> desire to read uh, Stendhal's The Red and the Black. It's been oh, that's, for a, long that's time. excellent desire. I wish yes. more people would have that desire. It's a yes. classic book. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Um, Anything point to this book? It just came out of the blue? Were you reading something and then it You know, popped? actually, yeah, well, I mean, it'd been on my uh, my shelf for, for years. And I have to say it was actually reading um, uh, Nocilla. No see a dream yes. uh, by Mayo and and probably not in a good way. I, I I was curious about what he was up to and um I started going through it and taking some notes and and I'll 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 give you my thoughts on that. But I suddenly just felt I'd actually was uh taking some time off from work and I was just saying to myself, you know, I have a chunk of time here and I'm not enjoying uh, no see a dream, quite frankly. <laughs> and so I said to myself, um, you know, when I have chunks of time, I want to choose a classic. I want to choose a book that is more difficult to concentrate on. And so, uh, Stendhal's the red and the black is not a huge book, but it is, you know, 500 pages. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, early 19th century. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, I know you're curious about, what, how do people get to these books? I mean, I have some classics on my shelf, like most people that, you know, uh, The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. And these are books that I just sort of almost say to myself that I'll get to when I have some vacation time. And and so that was the feeling like, you know, I, I'm reading the first volume of, of the Nocia tri trilogy. Do I really want to spend more time on the second two books when I think I see what's going on here. And, right, right. They're very similar, the whole the whole trilogy. But, you know, it's also very, it's like, hey, you read it fast. It's just like one, there are one sentences, one liners. Yeah. But, you know, almost, it's a fast read. So. But if you're not enjoying it, why should you continue, right? Yeah, so, so, so that was kind of where I was at with that. But I, I, um, I'd, I'd like to, to, to tell you more, but I, but I think, you know, probably like a lot of people, I'm also somewhat like, you know, here in Oregon, we just had, I guess a traumatic week is probably not too dramatic a way of saying it. And, sure. uh, yeah. you know, I know we were talking before the, the program just about 2020 just continues to be just rough. And, and everyone has their own versions of rough, whether it's, um, their economic situation or what country they're living in. But, you know, personally with, with COVID and, you know, my wife works in the medical field and then the political instability. And, and then, you're in Portland. I mean, you're, you're the hot spot there as far as the political instability goes, not, not to make a totally. hot spot with the, with the fires also. Totally. And so, you know, 
I, I had planned to take a week off last week and we were going to uh, rent a cabin in the woods out near Mount, uh, Mount Hood. And so, you know, quickly became clear that 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 was not a good idea. No. <laughs> um, you did not want to be on the roads heading out into the woods. So we canceled that and just said, look, we'll have a we'll have a staycation. Um, you know, we'll read and we'll we'll stream, um, you know, TV series, et cetera. And then this smoke from these fires drifted into the Portland area. And we were basically under a smoke lockdown for about nine days. And, you know, the 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 feeling that you can't even open your windows uh, without hurting yourself and putting yourself in danger. I have slight asthma. It was really kind of scary. And, and to give folks a, a sense of how bad it was today, our air quality is 15. So by contrast, we were in the, the high 400s. Um, for many days and right and anything over 50 is considered dangerous it's incredible and and you know heston is in portland and and i think there were days when portland went beyond 500 and literally the uh meteorological measuring agencies they don't they have no no scale for that scale stops (laughs) We, we actually don't know what that does to the human body to be exposed uh beyond 500 for an extended period of time so um well it's kind of like smoking three four packs of cigarettes a day probably yeah for Imagine sure that's uh, on your lungs it's not for sure so, good. so um you know and i and uh, you know and, and of course you know we we as a as a as a podcast we spoke about you know the george floyd uh killing you know a few months ago and how how that rattled us and um yeah it just seems like wave after wave and and then we learned that um RBG died. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, even, you know, regardless of your politics or whether you're political at all, this will further tear the United States apart, um, whatever happens, you know, and obviously I think it's, it's an absolute outrage if they are going to try to push through, uh, um, uh, you know, no many, what, through 40 days, is, right. I mean, it will be a, a real insurrection on our hands um, if that happens. So, you know, and I know you were before the the call. You were talking about uh, a group of writers and intellectuals yeah. that met in the mid '30s, and, and that there's some resonance for probably how you know thinking people feel right now uh, throughout the world, particularly right. in the West. Yeah, I mean, it's very similar to you. I've been kind of also shell shocked by all these waves of of insanity coming our way from various quarters. Um, but um, you know, following up on Yelena Furman's, um, you know podcast that we had last time really enjoyed that and i've i for some reason i had this blank well not a blank spot but a kind of a uh an avoidance of babel isaac babel uh all my life even though early on in my sort of intellectual development in college one of my uh, favorite philosophy professors pally yorgrau at brandeis uh was urging me like roman you have to read babel he's he's the best and I remember that because I was like, okay, I'll, I'll read Babel. But then, you know, what, 30 years later, I'm finally reading him, which is yeah. sad to say for a Russian American such as myself. Uh, I, I, I think it's partly, you know, my prejudice towards the longer work. Um, yeah. I think we should probably still talk about that, Rob, uh, uh, on the podcast um, as far as novels, short stories, poems. Yeah. We all have our sort of preferences. But I've been much more fluid uh, in the past 15, 20 years, uh, you know, with poetry and short stories. I've, I've, I've learned to sort of appreciate them and not be prejudiced towards the big work. Uh, and so now I'm coming around to finally, finally coming out to Babel and I realize why 
my philosophy professor was ranting and raving about him because this guy in about a page or page and a half can pack so much uh, visual detail and emotional detail uh, to a large degree without explaining things. Um, which reminded me in a strange way of, of Melville, um, particularly things like um, uh, you know, the Wall Street story, I would prefer not to, <laughs> where, where, where stories like that just resist interpretation. And Babel is not the same, obviously, but he has that kind of sketch that he does for you in words, but, and then that sketch kind of lays on your brain and then it starts sinking deep and you feel it sinking and you feel all these things coming up from you from just few, a few words by this uh, Russian writer who died when he was younger than me. He died in 19, well, he was 47, I think he died, um, you know, disappeared into Stalin's uh, horrendous uh, camp system and just died. Um, and he actually, he was working on a novel, I found out, uh, before his death. He did want to sort of expand his range. But just the Red Cavalry, Rob, you have to read it. Uh, the translation, I had to rely on the translation quite heavily, Rob, for some reason. Mm. Actually, I'll tell you the reason. Um, the, the Russian is so condensed. Um, uh, what am I saying by condensed? What am I meaning by condensed? It's so... Well, let me put it this way. The translations are way longer physically than the, the original Russian. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, that, so that a three-word or four-word sentence in Babel would, have, would necessitate 10 to 15 words in English to make sense out of. So, and you, so by that translation, you kind of leach some of that concentration. You leach some of that punch. You still get it in translation, absolutely. But... Um, so I, I've, I've, I've been reading the Red Cavalry stories in Russian on my left hand, and then it, it, my, on my phone, I had a translation and an ebook. Mm. So, and every few sentences, I would have to just go back and read it in English because the Russian, I knew my Russian is decent. You know, I can read Dostoevsky, I can read Nabokov um, without looking at the dictionary too much. But with Babel, I really had to uh really had to dig in deep into my Russian uh you know bag of tricks um and really enjoying it in a strange way uh I stumbled on this nineteen thirty five and this brings us back to what we're talking about this instability this crazy times we're living in there was a, a really an amazing meeting in nineteen thirty five that i i surely I read about before, but only recently have I become aware of how big it was it was the Congress. It has various titles, but basically a Congress for the Defense of Culture. 1935, June, at the end of June in Paris, uh, the threat of fascism was enormous at this point. The various factions of communists were arguing and fighting between themselves. But for this particular uh, meeting, something like over 300 writers and intellectuals showed up. Uh, we're talking Musil. Robert Musil gave speeches. We're talking Babel was there. Babel was talking in French. Babel apparently knew French very well. He learned it in school early on. And the first stories Babel wrote were in French. <laughs> he actually wrote his first stories in French. Mm -hmm. Interesting little detail. But anyway, so Babel was there. He gave a speech in French. And Musil was there. And I was thinking, interesting connection between Musil. You know, we had this whole series of podcasts on, on Musil. And then here comes Babel. 
And I was just wondering if anybody knows out there, I would love to for you guys to let us know. Maybe Janice, you, you would not know this. Uh, did Babel and Musil meet? They didn't know about each other. That would be an interesting kind of thing to follow up on. Um, and I wanted to read to you, Rob, um, uh, there's a, a partisan review, Roger Shattuck. Do you remember Roger Shattuck by any chance, Rob? I haven't, no. Yeah, he, he was um, sort of the, who's the guy for the New Yorker who writes the French stuff, who lives in Paris? Oh, Adam Gopnik. Yeah, he sort of, he was the Adam Gopnik of, of you know, the previous generation. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he was a French, he, he loved French culture. I believe he, he probably lived there, I'm assuming. But here, let me read you a little bit of uh, what Roger Shattuck wrote, wrote for the Partisan Review. Uh, in 19, I believe 1984. Um, the style of the Congress, judging by the newspaper accounts and photographs, was that of a popularly assembled assembly prepared to honor its cultural heroes. And by the way, cultural heroes are talking about E.M. Forrester was there, Aldous Huxley was there, Brecht was there, Heinrich Mann was there, uh, Michael Gold, Waldo Frank, Babel, Pasternak, Ehrenberg, Alexei Tolstoy. I mean, anybody who was, any, Tsara, Tristan Tsara was there. Um, anybody who was anybody in the cultural sort of writing world were there, they were there and everybody was excited. Um, uh, so I'm um, continuing with a quote from Roger Shattuck, uh, the newspapers naturally loved uh, the anecdotal and sartorial side, <laughs> both Huxley and Mike Gold wore funny hats. <laughs> uh, everyone on the platform kept his jacket on in spite of the heat. Um, uh, let's see, they, books were sold in a foyer with authors to autograph them, people sketched the speakers, photographers prowled, the talks went on and on, enormous quantities of beer were drunk, the management of the place where they were having this uh, had to turn the lights off to drive away the knots of people arguing late into the night. Um, so as you can imagine, this incredible feeling of, of camaraderie and, and such a diverse group of people, I mean, I don't know if uh, such a such a collection of folks can be managed nowadays in one physical space, maybe in a Zoom meeting. <laughs> but uh, imagine all these, suddenly all, all the major writers in the world converging in one place. Can you imagine that kind of thing? I, I really can't. I, I can't. And, you know, one thing that occurs to me, and this is probably will get me in trouble, but I, I think one of, the, one of the reasons we could never have such a, a meeting today is I don't think, certainly with American novelists and poets, I don't think they think of themselves as intellectuals, nor do they have probably the background training and education to, mm. to engage as intellectuals. Whereas, you know, the people you're referring to, I think to be a, particularly a European writer in the, you know, early part of the 20th century was not just to be, you know, a craftsman of fiction, but to be somebody who was engaged with right. the philosophical tradition and, and also to be very political, which, which I, the Europeans have a lo long tradition of that, you know, just totally. recently, like Umberto Eco is one of those public intellectuals who wrote a lot for, you know, the dailies. Um, but he was also, you know, a professor and of mm -hmm. course a writer and just one example, there's many, but I think you're right. I mean, I think, I mean, who do we, who do we have here that we can, point to and say, well, they're publishing in newspapers and give us, giving us, uh, I mean, there, there are a few people like that, of course. Um, right. But it's, it's just hard to it seems they live um, in England mostly. <laughs> right. And, and you know, the, he, he wasn't a fiction writer, but I think Christopher Hitchens was one of our last, I mean, the reason I, I include him is his, 
his literary essays and his book reviews were astounding. So you have a person who was, you know, principally a journalist who was, you know, analyzing and covering the political affairs of the day, but also a deeply, deeply grounded literary man who, um, you know, I mean, this is why his his friends were Salman Rushdie and, um, uh, you know, Mr. Amos and uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the the third British writer in that in that Rat Pack. But um, yeah, I, I don't I don't honestly I, I um, you know, the rare times that you see a fiction writer uh, in the popular media, whether it's on NPR or the PBS NewsHour or something, I find contemporary American fiction writers talking to be an absolute bore. They, they, yeah. they don't have any ideas. Um, they're not, um, you know, they're, they're simply usually just talking about how the book they're, they wrote came about. Uh, they, they often talk about their personal experiences, their, their family backgrounds. It's completely boring and under, in, interesting. So mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. So what, what was the, what's your takeaway from, from that Congress uh, for our world today? Well, uh, like I said, I, I was just thinking that's probably something that's not possible in today's world to have, uh, I suppose we'll call it the Western Western world's intellectuals gathered all in one place um, to basically fight or not fight, but it, some some come up with some sort of a conceptual way of handling, of, of pushing back yeah. against Hitler and Mussolini, of, of that kind of thinking. I guess nowadays we would call it, uh, you know, Trumpism. Um, pushing back against that in a very vociferous way, it's just not happening. We, who, I mean, I know everybody's outraged, or not everybody, people that listen to us are outraged <laughs> about what's going on politically um, in the country, in the world, particularly in this country, though. Uh, but there's no, and I think it's partly because the novel or the novelist as a, as a, as a professional, as a, as a cultural figure is now a, Pushed to the side, sidelines. Yeah. Though I must say, it's the sideline position of the intellectual, which actually is a huge advantage, because here you can actually say out say whatever you want to say. There's no way you need to really sugarcoat it. Uh, you know, if you were, let's say, um, like I don't know, maybe in this 1935 meeting, uh, I'm sure nobody was sugarcoating anything, but there were, you know, they were speaking to a lot of people. If you're on the sidelines, you're only talking to a few people, and so you can actually really say things. Right. Um, I, yeah, and and you know, look in the in the the twenties and thirties, you also had um, still a, a real. There was a unified belief system: communism, uh, social whoa, social democracy. So <laughs> well, well, let, let me. That was the problem with this Congress, Rob. That was the problem. No, but let me yeah, let, let me finish my point. The, the point is that there was a complete alternative mm. belief system with all of its subgroups and all of its infighting that, that, that contrasted with fascism, that contrasted with even, you know, yeah, right. democratic yeah. capitalism, right? Yeah. So, and, and also in a way, communism was also, um, although traditional religious Christianity was pretty much dead and gone at that point, it was still um, an alternative to that worldview. So now, you know, what is the alternative to, um, I think this is the problem that, um, that liberals are having in the West. You know, what are they really offering as an alternative to 
you know, um, a right wing oh. point of view. What, what's the alternative? Is it is it to a lot of people what what the left is offering? Vague. It's very vague, yes. and it is, um, you know, it can also be very condescending. It it's very concerned with policing the way people talk. It seems to be um, somewhat overly sensitive. Well, it, um, it's, naive. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's got definite definite um, echoes of nineteen the mid thirties and that whole meeting with the with the communist. Communism was sort of the alternative, right? Right. Even though communism had many, many different flavors, of course, and there were many in in fight, you know, in fights about like you know what's you know Trotsky or not Trotsky, yep. uh, militant, not militant, yep. um, and I think partly, uh, but you're right, there was a definite sort of uh, choice, you know, fascism or or this, uh, right. or maybe democracy was <laughs> a distant third. Um, but I'll tell you, many of those uh, intellectuals and writers who advocated communism and sort of turn a blind eye to the whole status, uh, this, the, 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 the fall communism practiced in the Soviet Union that became basically a, a horrible system that, that enslaved people as opposed to freeing them. Uh, they turned a blind eye to that a little bit and boy, they were sorry later on. Um, so my question is now, what do we, we have to, we do have to be careful because we don't want to be turning a blind eye to something without, I guess, turning a blind eye maybe is is a, the wrong metaphor because it's not something that you actually saw particularly. Maybe you felt it a little bit, but you chose to ignore it on ideological grounds. Um, you heard little rumors coming out of the Soviet Union that things weren't as rosy. Some actually, some people actually went traveling the Soviet Union, came back all aghast because they didn't find the communism that they were dreaming about. Um, but for the most part, people kind of kept the ideology, even though they saw the chinks in the armor very clearly, and then they get larger and larger. And eventually, people did leave the party and, and sort of got disenchanted. So our question today is like, where do we? How, do we have any alternatives to capitalism? Yes, we do. We have several alternatives. We have to be very careful because, again, judging from the previous examples, we don't want to be supporting something that sounds good in principle, but when applied, it tends to do the reverse of what you think it was doing. Um, so we have to tread very carefully. I'm I'm all for UBI, for instance, universal basic, basic income. I think that's a thing that's going to come, whether we like it or not, because it's a necessity. We can't survive in this world without some sort of a wealth redistribution. Um, you know, when you when you I remember going to the subways and uh, in New York and uh, reading um, uh, Buckminster Fuller, uh, and he would say things like he would write things like, you know, if you go on the subway. Just think, this one person out of the 30 people in the car, that one person can support everybody in that subway car easily, you know, because the wealth wealth is, has grown incredibly, but it's not distributed very well. And so we need we definitely, I think, the UBI idea is, 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 is ripe. But what framework will it take on? Um, some sort of a socialist, democratic socialist, European type of style, uh, Scandinavian style, so we need a little bit more, we need people like, we need people to be firm, but also offer off alternatives. I don't know, I guess Bernie. Bernie was a, a guy who did that very well, who spoke up for democratic socialism and, and wasn't cowering in the corner because of the word socialism. Um, but he's, you know, he's, he's on his way out and we need others. We need AOC maybe to step up and she has. I don't know. 
Hey, I, yeah, I, I'm also I'm also all for dumping a representative democracy and, and going for direct democracy. I mean, that's what really uh, our technology is, I think, is making us capable uh, of becoming a reality. Direct democracy. Right now we're having shit democracy. It's really not working very well. You know, it's a representative democracy. Our representatives, so-called representatives, don't really represent us. They represent, you know, the people who put them in office because of the money, blah, blah, blah. Everybody knows the story, yet everybody's going out and voting, which... In this particular election, I understand, and I will actually vote in this election. But in general, voting has very little meaning to me um, in this system. Um, so I'll continue sort of trying to spread uh, the message of universal basic income and some sort of a Scandinavian approach to politics. But I also don't want to get into too much into. I, I'm I'm like one of those intellectuals who really hates politics and everything. I'm sure you do too. We have no choice but to be getting our hands dirty, right? Yeah, we have to. And, and that's the, um, I think that's the key part to, to go back to, I think it's really interesting that you surface that, that Congress because I'm, I'm of, um, this is something I've been wanting to write about for a while and I'm very, very weary of, of, um, politics and novelists and <laughs> very, very weary of that. And, and, you know, there are examples of, I mean, George Orwell is somebody who was a committed, communist who was also uh, an artist. Um, but I think it's it's very, very dangerous ground. I think, um, you know, in France, you had people like uh, Andre Malraux, who I think just got caught up in his fervor for socialism and- um, Made him speak about it by the Congress. Yeah, and forgot uh, of his vocation, which is mm -hmm. to be an artist. So I don't know, for me, I, I certainly, um, I don't have any political system that I could that I could contribute. But I think um, what I would look to is that I think novelists and p literary people, because of what they do all day or what they should be doing all day, um, can at least outside of their work uh, in a kind of moonlighting capacity, can offer a perspective that is somewhat outside the binary you know, mm -hmm. that's existing right now. And so that's what I would look for with writers, not to look, I, I think any writer today who's sitting down, any novelist is saying like, you know, I'm going to scrap my current novel and I'm going to write the COVID novel. I think that person is a fool, to yeah. be honest. I, I, yeah. I really do. And I think um, I don't want to read about COVID-19 for about 10 years or even mm. further, mm. because I just don't think you can digest, you know, something on that level. Or I think you should, you know, you need to write the vision that's inside of your, you know, your being. And because you're going through this period of COVID-19. Of course, you'll have to be part of what. Yeah, it will come but, out. But, but, but not, as idea, central, not, as a, not as a focal point, not as exactly. a focal point to which to base your work on. I agree. So I, I feel really strongly about that. I think journalism, even though, you know, for 30 years, 40 years, journalism and fiction have been blending with, with many good results. I still think that's why we have journalists. They are locked into the moment, right? But fiction mm. writers and, and readers are, you know, the joy that we have is we're not locked into the moment, you know, hence we can, we can step out and we can read Stendhal or we can read Babel and kind of remind ourselves of like some of the similarities of, of human beings dealing with stuff at, in other centuries, but also some of the, the big differences and that, you know, this will kind of pass. Um, you know, for me, the danger of not in the 1930s, but in our time of, you know, 
I don't know, some some Congress where you have, you know, Jonathan Franzen and Crash the Horkai and, you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, Joyce Carol Oates and I don't know who, whoever else, is that um, I think that this, this feel-good, um, somewhat naive, somewhat um, uh, uh, elitist, left-of-center worldview mm. is, is really something that would spoil, you know, literature. Um, and, you know, here, here's an example, um, and this is an article that was in the millions just a few days ago, and I actually tweeted about it. Um, I respectfully disagree with, you know, the the approach of the writer. And it's an article called Home as a Verb, Writers on Choosing to Live Overseas. And it's by a writer named uh, Brittany Sonnenberg. And um, there's just a line that really jumped out at me. And I, it, it's a really innocuous sort of assertion, mm-hmm. but I think it, it gets to what we're talking about when you have politicized writers who I don't think understand the serious vocation of what it means to be a writer, which I think of as almost as like like the priesthood or something. Mm, and so, yeah, yeah. And and so, and again, my Catholic background. But but she um, she writes that, um, and again, she's advocating essentially, which on the surface is quite nice, is that we live in a globalized culture, a globalized world. You know, writers need to be um, they need to look beyond their their parochial environments. You know, in theory. Um, that's a, a good idea. But but she says, um, authors in a globalized era are increasingly tasked, that's the key word, mm. with depicting diverse surroundings or diverse cultures in a single setting. Um, so for me, the yeah. idea, right, the I, so, by, so by whom? Yeah. You know, and, and the idea, so nobody would question that as a human being in a multicultural society, being sensitive, aware, and respectful to people who don't share your particular background is a necessity. It's a it's a it's a common sense. It's a it's a a moral way of of being mm-hmm. a part of a community, and we need that in our politicians, our neighbors, our spouses, down the line. But the idea that an artist, a novelist, should have any of these thoughts in their mind when they're writing a novel is a contamination and a poison. And it it sickens me that that somebody is trying to, you know, and I, I'm not sure if this this writer is a novelist or or a you know a critic or or what, but um, I would think that there are a lot of writers who who believe in that as a human being, which is quite admirable, and and you know I I agree with them, but I just don't think that's how you approach art, and you know. To go back to Isaac Babel, the stories are so extraordinary, and they they defy any sort of political analysis. And he was writing in a mm. very very political universe, which is nineteen oh, twenty. He was writing about war. I mean, I know war is a political beast to begin with. But but he has he has no axe to grind other than simply uh, the truth of humanity. I mean, right. that's really it. And, and you know, you're marveling at these stories, and I've dipped in and out of them for years, and, but I sat down and really read, you know, a bunch of them. They're so extraordinary, and it reminds me of what Roberto Bolaño said about 
these these special works, these these magical pieces. And you know, you can't understand what they're about simply by going over the prose, going over the structure. Essentially, as you're suggesting, like you know, you mentioned Melville, that's a perfect writer to compare him to in a sense that there is a mystery and a wisdom in mm-hmm. works of art at this level that um we are not going to be able to describe them simply you just it's not read. spelled out it's not spelled out it's of under the surface not. it's it's what it's what happens when those words those magical words by these masters are mixed with your billions and billions of neurons and all of yes. your experiences and all of your reading and all of your things it's that mixture that literally i believe it's a literal chemical reaction that happens in the brain when you when you intake a text, right? When you read something, when you when you listen to a book, I it, think it, it, certainly, I, you want to you want to stand up. I wanted to stand up after a couple of those stories and just go, yeah, yeah, exactly. The physical reaction. I know. Yes. I was putting the book down and just like going, wow, loud, you know, out loud, wow, <laughs> dude, um, dude. I, I I I'm just the the way that. The, the story crossing the river spruce. Yes, yes, that first. The story. way it ends. Oh my God! What? Perfect. Per- I mean, who except a genius would th- think of ending that story that way? It just comes out uh, of left field, but it gives you a whole swath. Just one sentence, or maybe two sentences. No. Just gives you a whole swath of emotions and understanding that wasn't there before. And the whole story, which is less than two pages long, just suddenly the coalesces he- into art. The humanity, the humanity. And so, you know, if you were to sit down and think, let's see, we live in a world increasingly infested with, you know, right-wing ideology. I'm, I'm, I'm a, an opponent of the Trump administration. Um, You know, I identify with the protesters in Portland, Oregon. I'm going to write a short story that exemplifies that diversity, um, you know, is, is, is what we all need to aspire to. That story is going to suck. It's going to sink. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You know, and so maybe that's the the essay I have to write. I, I have to admit, it, it's it seems to be getting harder and harder to to get pitches accepted these days. There well, seems to keep, be such keep, a keep trying, Rob. This is definitely something that we need to see out there in the world. We need to push back. Uh, and you write very well about these things. I mean, all your uh, columns. With three quarks daily, which uh, listeners, by the way, check out Rob's uh, uh, really, really penetrating essays uh, for three quarks daily in the past couple of years. Um, so we we need you, Rob. We need you to express these feelings in writing because uh, I, we need that out there. I I feel yeah. I mean, I just feel strongly that in in a, in a world where we're increasingly careful, se- self conscious, <laughs> afraid of of. Um, you know, whatever our employers, our neighbors, afraid of the person on Twitter, what they will you think of us. Something wrong, afraid of being, you know, canceled. Exactly. Cancel culture. Just we're all living this weird fear that it's so many levels, and I think maybe that's that's part of the reason why we're so aghast at, at the modern world. Um, that it just seems to be based on fear. We have existential fear, slowly uh, freezing our inner beings and we feel frozen you know and if if people want to understand what that to go back to the idea of a vocation so uh babel was um he was he was arrested by the secret police um i think in 1940 or so and he was 39 yeah okay and he was put he was put on trial in in a in a sham trial and he was um assassinated and his one of his last pleadings 
to to this this dictatorial regime in, in the form of this courtroom was just let me finish my work. Mm. Let me finish my work. And, and this is this is like the cry of a true artist. Like yeah. you can kill me, but I still have these, you know, these things that need to come out from me. And it 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 really touched me to read that. I was just like, yeah. you know, There's so many, it's it's actually a good it's a good example because um for instance, Gaddis, William Gaddis, uh, his last book, much shorter than all of his previous books, he felt like he really had to get it out. He knew he had terminal cancer. He knew he only had some months left or maybe even less. And so mm. he wrote like a motherfucker. He wrote in, in a hospital bed. He wrote while he couldn't write anymore because he was too weak from the from the. Uh, the, the the treatment for his cancer. He just kept on writing, and this book came out, and it's Agape Agape. It's it's a condensed, mm. it's condensed Gaddis, and it's just all the goodness of Gaddis is is in there, and and yeah. So I Babel. I mean, imagine Babel finishing this novel, actually having a chance to finish this novel that he was working on. And it, this yeah. could have been this could have been a Ulysses. This could have been a Finnegan's yeah. Wake. Could have been something amazing. It probably would have been something amazing. But because of politics, because of ideas, some weird ideas, people get in their heads. They just kill people. Yeah. What the fuck? Yep. Ah. I, I, I want to um, just give, give uh, listeners a, a, a flavor of these stories in the sense. And they're very short, which is another kind of really interesting thing. These are like, you know, micro short stories, um, mm. you know, a page or two. And so they all take place, um, the Red Calvary stories in, you know, the Polish-Ukraine area of today. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the Red Army was essentially, you know, bringing communism to the the peasants of Poland who you know, were just like... Yeah, fuck you. you. Know, and, <laughs> exactly. And so um, in the stories, you know, there are, um, there are lots of Jewish peasants and Babel was, of course, Jewish. And so he... He interacts with them. He hangs out with them. There's also, of course, it's Poland. So the Catholic Church has a huge um, presence, you know, priests and, and um, you know, odd believers. Um, so that's all there. But, you know, in this story, Crossing the Rivers, Bruch, uh, forgive my Polish, <laughs> you know, it, it really, there is this, his ability to describe nature is is incredible in wow. such precision yes. right so the yes. he's always talking about the sun and the sky but but at the same time um he he subtly will shift between mm -hmm. these gorgeous crystalline things of nature and then he'll he'll remind you of the violence that mm -hmm. they are in the midst of right they're in a very bloody kind of almost ethnic cleansing of it's the a war. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a war and so i i think war a totally dirty okay. word. And, and, the, the, <laughs> yeah. and, and the shocking thing is how he 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 puts that front and center, but it's it's um it goes to the foreground and the background with these incredibly kind of spiritual gut-wrenching observations and 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 images. Um let me yeah. just read this and you really get a sense of, of what what he the power he has. Um Fields of purple poppies are blossoming around us. A noon breeze is frolicking in the yellowing rye. Virginal buckwheat is standing on the horizon like the wall of a faraway monastery. Right, beautiful. This could be, you know, uh, uh, 
field in peacetime. Silent Volinia is turning away. Volinia is leaving, heading into the pearly white fog of the birch groves, creeping through the flowery hillocks and with the weakened arms entangling itself in the underbrush of hops. Okay, we're still quite sublime mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. The orange sun is rolling across the sky like a severed head. Isn't that like, great? What? Love that. Love it. Right? Gentle <laughs> yep. light shimmers in the ravines among the clouds. The banners of the sunset are fluttering above our heads. So you think, well, maybe that was just an odd slip. You know, that's a, that's a weird image. Um, the stench of yesterday's blood and slaughtered horses drips into the mm. evening chill. Wow. I, I, wow. Yeah, it, it drips. No. What? Wow. See, uh, I think it's the surprise. It's the, super, it's, it's right. the way he, the, that next word that, that makes you go, what? Where did he come right. up with this word? How did this jump, this logical conceptual jump happen suddenly? And it totally makes sense. And it only makes sense, but it's, it makes it more vivid than, than the, the reality that you're looking at with your own eyes. Like right now, I'm looking at the computer in the wall right here. It's just more vivid than that. And that's just incredible. And Rob, if you don't, don't you want to finish that? Yeah. Um, you want to finish the reading? Because I was going to do a little bit of the same passage in Russian. If people are, if Please. the Russian speakers uh, listening to us, uh, the, all three of you will forgive me my... Uh, <laughs> My uh, uh, meaning my, my broken Russian pronunciation. Uh, but I love this. Uh, it was the, the purple poppies, right? Mm -hmm. The fields of purple poppies. That's how it starts, that, that the passage. Mm -hmm. And here's it in Russia. Поля пурпурного мака цветут вокруг нас. Isn't that just, I, just the, the, the way pronouncing it is just uh, probably horrible, but it, my mouth is loving saying this out loud. Полуденный ветер играет желтующей ржи. Девственная гречиха встает на горизонте, как стена дальнего монастыря. And so on and so on. I'm not going to do that for you guys. But it's just the, that language. Um, it sounds wonderful in English, especially those transitions, you know, with that, the sun, like a headless, you know, the, it's just wonderful images. But in Russian, it's just, um, I don't know. I had to really dig into the language, I think, because... I had to look up some of the words. Maybe that's yeah. why I'm so enthralled with the specific Russian, uh, Russianness of it. Um, but I was, you mentioned Poland, and it's mm -hmm. interesting because before Babel, I was, uh, I got through Olga Tokarczuk's um, Plow Your Bones, Plow Your Bones of the Dead. So what is it called? Plow Your, no, Turn Your Plow the Bones of the Dead, something like that. It's, yeah, I'll look it up. Uh, plow. Oh, never mind. Never mind. I'm not on, on online anyway. Uh, anyway, I, I read um, this book by Olga Tokarczuk, and it uh, takes place in Poland, but on the border of of the Czech Republic. And we we're talking about the you know the, the international writer uh, dealing with all these themes, uh, morality and ethics. And this particular book, I haven't read anything else by her, and I will. Um, uh, really is. Uh, uh, one of those novels that I can see why she got the Nobel Prize because mm. it 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 has a, a very deep kind of morality. Uh, ostensibly, it's about a, a vegetarian who just doesn't like the hunters in her village. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very simplistic and probably not fair a description of the book. 
uh, plow your bones over the dead. No, what is it called? Can somebody look it up for me? Uh, <laughs> um, our, our researchers will be on that. Yeah, yeah. I just finished it too. It's for some reason not coming to my head. Um, it's it's an odd title. Um, it comes from Blake, and one of the people that this uh, the the protagonist associates with in the book is a is a translator of Blake into Polish. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really reminded me of that whole Babel. Um, first of all, it's a similar milieu, you know, similar geographic kind of area. Um, and it has this, again, I'm not comparing the two. Don't, don't get me wrong, Rob. It's not a comparison. But they gave me a, a similar uh, resonance. Yeah. They resonate because of the, the, I guess, the setting is similar. And there's that deep ethical concern, which maybe you don't see it in Babel. It's not on the surface as much as in Olga Tokarczyk, because it certainly is on the, it's on the surface mm-hmm. <laughs> with Tokarczyk. I mean, it's very... Mm very much front and center as part of the novel basically she's against killing animals mm. um but this and we talked about this before you guys um drive your plow over the bones of the dead thank you heston uh, <laughs> <laughs> he just sent me a message a uh, great book I really uh, a man of many hats here yes yes i really recommend this book podcast guys. studios yeah um and we were talking a few months ago in one of the podcasts about, and I mentioned something about morality in writing, and you were aghast. You're like, no, you know, and I totally understand that. But what I mean by morality is that there's a deep understanding of what's right and what's wrong. It's not something explicit. Not, you know, don't drink coffee or go ahead, drink coffee. That's fine. We're not Mormons. Um, you know, it's not, not one of those surface stupid distinctions, but it goes deep. Um, and I think Gaddis is uh, William Gaddis is somebody who I deeply, deeply respect and bow to his sense of ethics or morality. He was just outraged. He was outraged, and he wrote out of outrage, but he was able to contain it and with his incredible intellectual genius to form it into these incredible works. But writers who can't contain it are poor writers, I think. That's that's when it comes out to the surface, this morality, and becomes right. a preaching kind of thing, and, you know. And, and that's the same challenge of of yeah. dealing with politics. Yes, you exactly. you have to be an artist of. You have to transform it. Yeah, you have to come. You can't come trans- at it straight on. I know. There's got to be yeah. a transmutation in your head of the world that you're experiencing. This transmutation from shit, which is what the world gives you, into gold, which is art, it has to happen in the artist's head. And this chemistry, this alchemical reaction, I'm not even going to call it a chemical, it's, it's, it's partly magical. It's got some sort of je ne sais quoi thing about it. If it happens, if there's, if there's something wrong with this chemistry mixture, something, it's so, my point is it can so easily go wrong. So these right. people who write these books uh, and are incredible artists, um, you realize, especially after trying to write, Boy, I've I've known I've, I've I've tried to write my own shit, and I know Rob, you have, and some of your stuff is way better than mine, that's for sure. But I know that I just suck. I I mm. just compared to these people, um, who probably also sucked in the beginning. I'm sure it's a it's a process, <laughs> but um, but you can see it. For instance, with Babel, he he works things out. He works them out, and as I progress with my reading, I'm going to keep an eye on how he changes as a writer because he was changing towards the end of his life. Like I said, he started writing a novel. Uh, he became sort of, uh, he was a master of the novella, but he became a little bit um, sort of, he wanted to expand his writerly universe. And he was such an incredible 
professional is the wrong word. I actually don't like the word professional. It smacks of capitalism to me, uh, smacks of some sort of a, a, a Protestant work ethic. I'm a professional, so I get things done right. <laughs> fuck you, Mr. Professional. Uh, so he was an artist. So he, as an artist, he wanted to keep growing. Um, and, uh, and I think that's the key to any good writer, is, uh, or artist really, is this, this continuous growth. Um, I don't see this growth from the writers that I don't respect. Well, yes. And I and, do see it from the writers that I do respect. Or yes. maybe I respect them because I see this change. I don't yes. know exactly. And, and I, I want to take that thread and I want to advance it to something that I think is related and what I, I want to talk about as well is so, so we're dealing with unquestioned artistry and genius of Babel in the 1920s and during his lifetime, right? So, so we accelerate to our current moment. And I think we've talked about this on the show that we we both are in agreement that um, literature is probably seventy to eighty years behind the plastic arts or mm. or the visual arts. Yeah, William right? Burroughs said that. Yeah, right. about fifty years so, for him. <laughs> I mean, it's just obvious. Go, go to whatever's near you, Barnes and Noble, and go to the fiction section, and it is just it's just trash. Yeah. I, I'm I'm sorry to be so harsh, and it's derivative trash, which is actually the worst kind. Mm. Um, so, so I, you know, I'm always looking for something that, that is going to lead us out of the darkness, although Joyce did that in 1922, but, um, so, so we had talked about, um, this Spanish writer, uh, Agustin Fernandez, uh, Mayo, mm -hmm. who is of the, you know, quote unquote, younger generation of Spanish writers. And he is uh, a leading light so much so that, um, I think, there's the Nosia generation referring mm. to the Nosia yeah, trilogy. Yeah. I mean, he's probably about, you know, our age 50 or something like that. Mm. But, but the thing to understand about uh, him in Spain in particular is, you know, Spain is blessed with what a problem to have, right. With these leading lions, these, these giants who write in a very traditional literary way. I mean, most notably uh, Javier Marias, who is, potentially a Nobel Prize winner, who I personally adore, mm. and also people like Antonio Munez Molina, another fantastic writer. So these are writers who, you know, were born, um, they're like baby boomers. They're born in the 40s or, or, or the early 50s. So they're obsessed with the Spanish Civil War, their parents' experience. Again, very literary. They write in a very traditional way. And so naturally, at a certain point, you know, younger Spanish writers said, you know, screw this. This doesn't express what we went through growing up in a post-Franco Spain, um, right? In the 90s, the 80s and 90s, Spain became increasingly international, blah, blah, blah. So, um, so uh, Mayo was a, um, a scientist uh, by training, um, got started later in life, and I guess he had a, um, a serious, uh, some kind of uh, uh, motor vehicle accident in Thailand. So he was in a hospital and he he had had this idea for, you know, a big work in a long time. So he he wrote um, the Nosia Dream, which is the first volume. Mm. And so I, I have so many thoughts on, on what mm -hmm. he did. Um, so he is trying to break away from, you know, the 19th century novel and in particular, the particular uh, forms of the contemporary Spanish uh uh, novel. Kind of a, so a realist approach to things. So, right. So he's writing in the early 2000s, the early aughts. And so 
The novel is structured, um, it has basically these tiny, tiny chapters, which are maybe half a page, a page and a half. So they're all quite different in terms of their content and their style. Um, there are, are, there's a vague, there's some uh, stories that involve characters in the Nevada desert in the U.S. West. Um, but there's there a tree involved. There's a tree of yeah, money. Yeah, right. There's like this. Yeah, there's this ancient <laughs> sycamore tree, and so you go from chapter to chapter, and there aren't obvious connections between. You might go to another chapter, and it is a um, an essay-like investigation of what binary code is. Hmm. Right. There's a lot of references to computers, um, to science, but at the same time, you go back to these very well, like. Isn't he a I physicist? Like, or, yeah, or, I think he was a physicist, exactly. That, yeah. I think that was his training. Yeah. So um, so you have all of these things. It's almost like a like people have compared it to having, you know, 35 web browsers open, right? Yeah. Tabs. So you can go from tab to tab. So it's really interesting. It's very easy to read if you are a, a modern person. Um, it's interesting. Some chapters are simply just a quote from like Borges or a quote mm. from Einstein. So you know, you're, there's no implicit, you have to kind of yeah, figure there's out. This link, there's the, link, the links are kind exactly. of under, under the surface a little bit. Yeah. So it's, so it's quite interesting. A lot of also a lot of, I think he relies a lot on, on things happening at the same time, coincidentally, so to speak. Totally. Yeah. So if, if there's a, if there's a kind of theme that you see in this first novel, uh, this first volume, it's this idea of like um, the detritus of our society assembling uh, you know, there are characters who are obsessed with like finding photos and, and creating a collection. Uh, there's a reference to a museum in Los, Los Angeles, which is the Museum of Found Objects, right? And so this is all really interesting and cool, living in a wasteful consumer society and we have shit everywhere. Um, so I, I'm kind of digging it in a sense. It, it's He's breaking free. I like what he's doing. I find it intellectually engaging. But I, it's so, I guess it was written very, very quickly. And so the translation is somewhat true to the Spanish. It's not very interesting. The prose is very flat. It does have this sort of like it was whipped out kind of feeling. Um, and there are also some really, to me, like embarrassing, uh, imprecise, clunky factual errors or references to the U.S. West was as an American living in the West really throw me. He talks about there's a character who um, was in the U.S. Army and spent his entire life in San Francisco. And, in, in, you know, there's no way that you could be in the U.S. Army and spend your entire life in San Francisco. I don't even think there's a base in San Francisco. So these <laughs> odd references or he refers to the the humid air of Santa Barbara. I mean, again, anyone who's, right? I know. <laughs> and and the, the characters in the U.S. West, of course, drive Mustangs and, and are always going to bordellos in the Nevada desert. So some of that is just annoying. Yeah. And perhaps to a European audience, it, it would sort of fit yeah, some of their sure. expectations. But it but it frankly, it lost me. And so I'm of really two minds. I, yeah, there's I, more Teslas than, than Mustangs in California at this point. I, exactly. <laughs> um, it, so, it didn't age well. It, it certainly didn't age well. Yeah, but I, found, I found it semi-intriguing enough to read two of the you three did. books. Okay. And I actually ordered the third book, Rob, and okay. it arrived, and I was kind of excited to read it, and I opened it up, and it's in French. I got the <laughs> French version. Oh, that's uh, cool. it, I believe it's actually somewhere in your garage right now. 
okay. Uh, but right, let me I'll... tell you, let me put it this way. I yeah. liked it enough to get the third book, but I didn't like it enough to get the third book in English. You know what I mean? So I got the third book, and I'm like, eh, it's not in English, eh, and I just forgot about it. Yeah. So I, even though I kind of enjoyed that approach because I've seen it elsewhere, it's not a new approach. I don't think it's a groundbreaking thing that he was doing. Uh, the speed of the writing actually, I think, helped, even though it hurt the details. But I don't think he would have been able to write this uh, going super slow. It would have, he would have bogged down. Um, I did, I did like the sort of the kind of the the quantum, you know, quantum connection of it all. Yeah supposed to be all connected somehow in this mysterious level um but it didn't move me yeah it was, me too. It was more head it was more head high than a body high to right people. i i almost think Not that weak terms <laughs> yeah i i think this is an important novel for other spanish writers i mean yes. that's that's what came down to it because you know um yeah. as as globalized as spain is they still have a very you know proud and maybe somewhat insular literary tradition um well don't let andre from the un, uh, untranslated here you say that man he's got <laughs> he's he's been advocating um a catalan writer uh, that i don't well I, right i mean you could you could i mean the 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 writers of spain um i'm sure the writers in catalan in catalonia would would say hey we're not a part of that we're tradition. not a part exactly don't, yeah. don't don't bunch us with those guys and and so you know maybe i was just um kind of blurbed you know, Matthias Anar, the author of Compass, who I adore, he, you know, he gushed over, over this, um, this trilogy. And, and so I don't know, I, I, I mentioned him also because he has a new novel coming out, uh, in the fall, uh, that is, um, uh, Mayo. So, you know, so folks who are really into what he did can kind of look for that. Um, so, so dude, it was, it was reading this and just saying, you know, when I have some, time off from work. I really don't want to sp spend it reading what I consider fairly thin right. stuff. And so that's why I switched to Stendhal, The Red and the Black, Le Rouge and Le Noir. Mm. And, um, you know, the incredible story of, uh, you know, man from the provincial uh, backwaters of France who, you know, kind of through, through cunning and, and, uh, uh, being a romantic and, and being, uh, you know, bold and, and somewhat callous, you know, makes his way, uh, to the top of French society. It, it almost like it's a, you know, uh, Stendhal wrote a book on Shakespeare, was very well versed in Shakespeare and, and the main character, Julien Sorel mm -hmm. is, um, has a, has a Shakespearean complexity and, and, and that's what really drives the book. It's, it's, you you just you're amazed at watching him as you're amazed at watching you know King Lear or Hamlet. Um, the book is, you know, astounding. And and so I I just picked up the Charter House of Parma, mm -hmm. and so th this is a book that you know, deals with um the Napoleonic, uh, years right, and right, uh, right. Stendhal was was kind of a accountant administrator with uh, the Grand Army of Napoleon's and he was um. He went into Russia, dude, with Napoleon, and he witnessed Moscow being burned. And he was wow. he was a part of the retreat, man, the awful, Ooh. painful retreat. And of survived. The, Goodness he, gracious. And survived. Yeah. So he's just an extraordinary uh, writer who, you know, has been on the, um, you know, the cusp of my. Well, a, you know what? The funny thing is I've read one book by Stendhal years and yeah. years ago, and I don't remember. Which one? He, well, he wrote I, a 
book on love. That's the one I read. I read the one, the one on yeah. love. Yeah. Somebody said, and I forget who recommended it to me, said, yeah, the other books are great, but this is the real deal. Read on love. It's the kind of the, that's where Stendhal kind of really unfurls his wings as far as a more personal approach to, yeah. to, to writing. Um, less of a you know, historical background with Napoleon and stuff like that. So I recommend Rob maybe uh, to just kind of round off your reading. Just try it on love because it's. Mm. I don't remember specifically uh, how I enjoyed that book. I just remember being impressed. Uh, but that was like thirty years ago, so I don't really remember too many details. You know, um, and and to kind of connect it with our discussion about politics and literature. I don't, I don't know if you remember this moment, but I mean, this is something to really reflect on, particularly considering our current political environment. In 2000, if people remember a man by the name of Al Gore, he was <laughs> he was running against uh, George W. Bush, um, who now seems like a, a you know a, a noble, yeah. uh, sophisticated, a kind, uh, um, cosmopolitan man yeah. uh, compared to Trump. So, so um, they had a debate, and they're on the debate stage, and like they're doing their thing. And the uh, moderator suddenly asked Al Gore, you know, Al Gore, and I don't know if it was like an audience question, he goes, what is your favorite book of all time? So Al Gore, without really any hesitation, and I doubt he expected the question, he said, Stendhal, the red and the black. And I remember my, my jaw dropping and being like, wow, what a... What a, well, I mean, the guy, Al Gore was an educated man, the guy. But, but it's such a, I mean, I, I can understand if he was like, he said, you know, The Sound and the Fury, Faulkner, or, you know, right. Moby Dick, or it's just a bit for, of an odd choice, yeah. for an American politician. And, and, and if you're going to choose a European writer, you'd think they would have chosen. You wouldn't I mean, choose a French one. <laughs> I, it's just crazy. And, and do, you, do you remember, so the question also went to President Bush. Do you remember what his answer was? was pop and pop? I don't know. <laughs> What's his he, favorite book? He he looked. He did a little smirk, and he said, "The Bible." Oh, you bastard! Perfect, right? Bastard. Evangelical voters, boom! Yeah. You got him. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, well, you know, for a wife, he's got a wife who's a librarian, right? She's a librarian. He should have probably not said the Bible, but he was being a politician. I can understand is it, that. Is it Melania librarian? <laughs> uh, is he? I, I mean, it was a bad attempt at uh, being facetious. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're getting silly here, Rob, but it's, yeah. it's um, silly. It, it, the times are driving us silly. I don't know. In I know. A bad way. So we, we ask our listeners to forgive us if this, this episode seems far afield, but, you know, we, we also, uh, we, we, times of social interaction are far reduced uh, in this world. So it's, yeah. it's, I'm just happy so, to talk to, talk to my friends. Isn't it nice? It's like great. We're like talking over each other. We're so excited to be talking to people. Uh, um, I want to talk a little bit, Rob, about yeah. what are we going to do for next time? Because I have several ideas. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I want to certainly continue reading Babel. And I want to explore the Walter Benjamin, who wasn't at this 1935 meeting, surprisingly, yeah. uh, probably because he was uh, doing something else more important. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, he actually published a, 1935 is when he published that famous uh, essay on the uh, art and age of reproduction mechanical production. Um, so he was probably busy just writing that. But I, I want to explore, is there any connection between Walter Benjamin and, and the 30s and the whole Soviet connection with Babel? Um, also wanted to explore, I got his book on hashish. And since I'm uh, here in California where that stuff is legal, I'm thinking of 
and you know, you guys, anybody listeners who are really against this certainly are welcome to let us know um, or for it. Uh, I'm thinking of ingesting and not smoking, but eating, which is, gives you a very different uh, experience of eating a relatively um, large quantity of hashish um, and talking on the podcast uh, very high. I don't know if that's a good idea. Sounds like a bad idea, uh, but it might be a good idea. Um, we don't have to release the podcast if it goes really, really badly. And I guess you guys will know if there's no podcast. Uh, but uh, I'm thinking of doing that just because uh, Walter Benjamin uh, and that whole time uh, with Babel as well and the political instability and his writing on hashish and sort of the transfer of knowledge between the 19th century to the 20th century is so important because we're doing the same now. We're doing going from the 20th century to the 21st century and it's a it's a rocky transition. So using hashish and using a, a, an alternate mind frame I'm going to maybe try uh, to make sense of, of, of that transition, at least from the 19th to the 20th century via um, Walter Benjamin uh, and Babel. It might be totally a, a crazy idea. I don't know. But um, I'm a thinking first, of doing that. A first in podcast history. Well, a gonzo, gonzo podcast. It'll be our, our gonzo podcast where Roman goes crazy on, on hashish and the babbles about Babel. Um, I, I don't know. Could be fun. Uh, we'd be just be staring at the screen and listening to you talk for an hour. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I'm thinking of doing that and continuing with Babel. I really want to explore Babel uh, like thoroughly. I want to read everything by yeah. him in Russian. I want to read about him. Mm. Uh, I want to read Bunin. Ivan Bunin and Babel are sort of the two major influences on Soviet literature, which is, again, going back to Yelena Furman's um, um, talk with us last on the last podcast. I really want to approach um, the diaspora writing, but I want to I want to get a really firm grip on Soviet writing because you know I, I love Dostoevsky and, and Gogol and the pre-Soviet writers, and I kind of lose them a little bit uh, during the Soviet times. You know I don't like Gorky. Though Gorky discovered Babel or at least yes. gave him this big first uh, chance. Yes. Um, uh, and so, by the way, a wonderful American professor of literature who specializes in Gorky. I cannot think of his name. I'll think of it for next time. Mm. Uh, he's got wonderful YouTube lectures on Gorky and just the whole Russian Soviet literature. I just I'm spacing his name. I'm sorry. Um, so I really want to delve into my my DNA as far as um, literature goes. I might go back to my Soviet roots. I left I left Russia when it was still a Soviet thing. And so I want to sort of come to terms with that. I, to a certain degree, I already am because I'm a, I'm a big um, Strugatsky Brothers fan, the, the, the two brothers, um, Russian writers of science fiction, Soviet writers, really, um, who, by the way, if you guys want an incredible overview of the, the Soviet experiment or experiment, if you want to call it that way, their last book, the Strugatsky Brothers' last book, book it was just translated a few years ago it's called the doomed city d-o-o-m-e-d -O -O -E the doomed city if you're a science fiction fan and if you don't care about soviet russia it's a great book to read but if you're a science fiction or just a, a good literature fan who really wants to get that that alchemical transformation that we we're talking about before rob about turning you know the shit of real life into the gold of art well they did that with the whole soviet era in this one book it's the last book. 
It's science fiction, yet it's about Soviet Russia. You know, as, as Ursula K. Le Guin kept saying, you know, science fiction is, is really a realist genre. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. the most realist genre we have in the way. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I'm going to try to sort of get under the Soviet snow a little bit for the next podcast and, and maybe deal with that on hashish. I don't know if that's a good idea. Maybe not. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what do you think, Rob? Um, I think it's... You know, I, I I will be stone cold sober, so I I, I might be my straight man. Good, I'll be a straight man. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if that'll be helpful or not, but um, you know, my my guess is um, uh, probably uh, listeners would probably have no idea unless you told them. That that's well, my guess. To, I would have to preface it because I, uh, I I I I'm I'm assuming I will be I'll be talking differently, but maybe I'll be the same. You you told me once that stone and not stone, I sound the same, but I internally it always feels different to me when I'm yeah. high. I always feel, you know, like I'm not being myself, really. I'm just being my high self. Yeah. Well, I- as long as you talk books, man, we're down. Oh, yeah, it's all books, man. <laughs> it's all books for me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, Walter Benjamin, I, um, so I am, he, he's someone I'm kind of like, a, um, you know, to go back to Spain, kind of like a, uh, a, to- a Toreador. I'm kind of, mm. you know, circling the bull. The bull. You can a little bit more if you're not careful. Yes. Yeah. So um, I have the arcades archives project or excuse me, the um, exactly yeah. the arcades project. And I also have a book that I ordered um, called One Way Street, which actually is sort of his experimental sort of novel, which actually has some parallels with um, the Nosia trilogy in terms of its format. Interesting. You know, these very little chapters and um, you have to, there aren't obvious connections between piece to piece within the, within the book. So that's there. But I, I, I also want to, um, I've never really dealt much with critical theory or the Frankfurt School. And I, I um, consider yourself lucky. Yeah. But I also, I really want to, um, I still feel like, you know, to go back to, to, to your original sort of thought, I still feel like modernism um, in the thinkers. And I still think that there's a lot that we can unpack. Oh yeah. And that no, we no, can we're, we're find useful. It. It's not over, man. Yeah. It's not over. People will, will say, oh, it's post, post, you know, const- right. whatever post era we're in. Eh, eh, no, we're just dealing with modernism, <laughs> really, with the, and, with the effects of modernism. Yeah. And so I, I have to say, you know, weirdly enough, I don't know if it's just synchronicity or, or a real groundswell, but interest in, in Walter Benjamin continues to per, you know, pop up here and there. So I, I think people are finding value in his work in our own chaotic age. Um, and so well, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm down for that, but I, I probably need a little more time to, uh, yeah, me too. I think two weeks is not enough for that for sure. Get myself more situated, but yeah. I'm going to continue reading, um, Babel. So uh, we could, we could certainly, um, yeah, you know, start there and Keep, and uh, talking Bible for a while. Yeah, on this podcast, yeah. I think he's a he's a writer that I criminally now understand being almost fucking fifty years old. I've criminally uh, ignored uh, for yeah most of my life. It's really um, a bad thing. So I'm I'm definitely doing some catch up and loving it. I'm I'm loving it also because I think Rob reading Bible in my twenties would have been a different experience. I would have liked to have done that so that I could compare my understanding of him now. Uh, to my my twenty year old self, but I think 
being 50 and uh, undergoing this transition, this uh, weird cataclysmic almost transition, worldwide transition that we're going through is is yeah. the perfect time to be reading Babel because he can he can sort of he can sort of give us the deep, the deep meaning of it all. Uh, and, and imagine what the world must have looked like in the border of Poland and Ukraine in 1920, in, in the wake of World War One, in the wake of the Russian Revolution. Yeah, uh, we think we have it bad. Jesus my Christ. goodness. Yeah. My goodness. And, hey, and I always, I'm always reminded, Robert, whenever we talk about this, I don't know because we live, we are living through this moment. We're alive. We're reacting to our world. But I keep remembering, uh, what's that Woody Allen movie that wasn't that good, but it was all right. It was something about Paris. It was relatively recent. Oh, where, yeah. Midnight at Paris. Golden age and people think, you know, and there's, there was a question, uh, do, do, does everybody think there's a golden age they live through or there's a bad age they're living through? Does everybody, does everybody have that sort of like, this is it, you know, the apocalypse is happening now. You know, uh, while, you know, 1914, 1915, people were saying the same thing. I call, oh, my, the world's ending, which it kind of was. But what is ending? Is it, is it the, the conceptual, the ideological world that we've built? I think that's what's ending. Yeah, and and that's the that's the key thing, and that's what frustrates me about our current you know political trench warfare, which has to be waged, as we alluded to, but it it ignores the fact that you know what really changed from the Edwardian age, you know, prior to World War One, and then the post-war was was ideas died, mm. and ideas were transformed, and that's what was so yeah, but painful, process, exciting, it, dramatic. Yes, so many bones were crushed. Exactly. Why do ideas crush bones, Rob? That's. I think I want to leave leave this episode with that idea. Why? Why do ideas kill? Ideas kill, not people. Ideas. I mean, at least people kill maybe on a one base. You know, I mean, you have a mass murderer who just is crazy, a sociopath, whatever. Yeah, I understand that kind of. Well, I don't understand that kind of killing, but I can I can put it in context. But ideological, when people get frothy at the mouth. At their neighbors because they think differently. Well, dude, I mean, the <laughs> I, 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 you know, I can't handle, I can't answer that straight on. But I, I would go back to um, the Babel story um, of the rabbi, right? And 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 he sits down with the rabbi, and the rabbi is basically saying like, oh no, it's not the rabbi, it's the Jewish uh, shop owner, who has a, a sort of antique store, mm-hmm. and basically. Um, you know, uh, the, 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 the narrator of the story is a, you know, uh, a red army soldier. And they're, they're, they're kind of talking about like, you know, the revolution, you know, he's like, yeah, the revolution has come. And he's like, well, the revolution came and requisitioned a gramophone from my store without paying. And he's like, well, the revolution has come and it's going to free you from, you know, these Polish landowners. He goes, well, yes, but the revolution, you know, so this, this, yeah, the, the, uh, you know, trying to get below this idea of these these political ideas that are are leading to, you know, theft and rape and pillaging. And, and you know, this humble Jewish shop owner is just trying to, like, go, look, right. <laughs> you're, you're this we're talking yeah, the illogical pause off of my shop. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, man, big questions. I, I wouldn't pretend to have um, any answer, but. Um, you know, I, I I told my wife, I said, when this does end, and there probably won't be a clear ending, but I, I wonder if um, uh, in, in the West, where we have the means to do such things, particularly in the U.S., I wonder if you'll see um, 
a very uh, free, um, uh, sensual time in the U.S., much like you saw in Weimar, Germany, after mm -hmm. World War One, where, you know, people had been through hell. They'd been the, through the pandemic, the yeah, war, they depression. Partying. Yeah. yeah, they started partying. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I wonder if we'll see, you know, the loosening of you know, morals around, you know, sexuality and, and, and drugs and et cetera, uh, as people just are kind of happy to be alive, happy to have survived. I think it will, it will probably continue that trend because the trend has already been going on. Um, I mean, look, I really feel it now that I moved to California, that you can go to a shop and buy yourself some interesting plants that will change your consciousness. Um, but, you know, sexuality is much more uh, open nowadays. It's just, it's it's still I mean there's still this this clash of of, of things going on because it's again I think it's when there's some sort of a transition period it, I don't think every period is a transition period there's, there are periods where things are calm right yeah I think we I I don't remember in my lifetime any any period like that but uh, historically I think that's that's a truism or is it I don't know yeah <laughs> is it is the world always up in arms about something or other or are the moments where months years Oh, God bless us, decades where things just kind of go okay. I mean, that's all I'm asking for. That's all we're asking for. Not we're right. not asking for utopia. We're just asking for good enough. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> in, in my in my own lifetime, what I tend to look back on is I tend to look back on 9-11 as the um the the moment when, hmm. you know, uh, uh, like world events um suddenly went into turbulence and so you know having a middle class life in the united states excuse me um it was the first indication that um you know the 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 fantasy yeah. that middle class people yeah. had in the us of things would just continue on forever that um there there's going to be turbulence mass glimpse of the under, underbelly the ugly underbelly of the world yes it was a mass glimpse right. everybody saw it it was like exactly. tv and, screens and, and so it you know yeah. it 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 further divided our politics and and of course it changed the way we travel and the way we gather and it created you know whatever the 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 homeland security department and all this sort of nonsense and and now it's it's just more expanded with um you know with the virus and and with right. the, um uh you know but you mentioned mean, but these things go through phases and they yeah. uh, what what's what's the thing about phase beginning middle and end where the fuck is this end yeah that's what I want to know. <laughs> That's all. Right. Yeah, there's 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 not going to be a treaty of Versailles where um you know everyone sits down and you know Well, I'm, I'm hoping there'll be some sort of some sort of uh symbolic ending in November. It's got to be. It's got to happen, guys. Come yeah. on. It's got to happen. Or if it doesn't happen, I don't know. I'm not going to go there. Yeah. Let's let's just assume it's going to happen. Well, um I think we we probably run our course. This has been fun to catch that, up. Yes. Um, and we'll continue reading and I'm, and I'm sure, um, we'll have surprises for people, uh, coming up guests as we always have. We don't have anyone scheduled at the moment, uh, complete transparency, oh, but, but we have some good that ideas. always changes. Yeah. We have some good, solid ideas for guests. Uh, exactly. so yeah, stay tuned for sure. So, and, and again, appreciate, um, you know, all the support that we get and the comments. Um, and I really appreciated people supporting Yelena Furman and, and, her you know uh her site and um you know her kind of uh her she efforts was great, to, wasn't she? Wow, she yeah was great for the last, it was just so much information and and just really put things in context for for us i really enjoyed that the chat sure 
Oh, so, we should mention the, the t-shirts, Rob, no? Should we mention the t-shirts? Are we going to do anything with the t-shirts? Maybe we should have talked uh, about them. I mean, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll just, we, I'll be we frank. Can, I, I've sent a few out, but, you know, I, I don't have plans to be an e-commerce uh, giant. Um, but, you know, if, if you, if you feel the t-shirts attract you, hit me up. Let me know. Yeah. If you, I think if you wear the t-shirt and take a photograph and post it somewhere, I think that's, that's totally. we'd love that. Um, I just want to mention Ina Call from, um, from our, our, our African friend. Uh, he's lost his, his reading device and uh, I know he's been listening to a lot of podcasts. You're awesome. Keep at it. And I just want to mention that. Yep, for sure. <laughs> and so uh, just a reminder to people, if you can go to, uh, in particular, Apple Podcasts and leave uh, a rating or a mm -hmm. comment, that's really, really useful because it, it helps expose the podcast as a recommendation uh, when people are searching or viewing other literary podcasts. So that's useful. And also, you know, if you haven't, follow us on Twitter at FeelBookish. And, um, you know, that's that's about it. So thanks for listening. And, um, you know, thank you, Roman. Hang in there. Fun. You too, man. Uh, um, and the same to Heston. Hang in there, brother. I know it's been really hard for us here in Oregon, but uh, hang in there, guys. This, it'll, it'll blow over. Literally. Yeah. Okay, guys. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thank you.